You're listening to From the Front Lines, a special podcast from WUFT during the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast provides weekly updates on Florida's coronavirus response with a particular focus on North Central Florida. Each week, From the Front Lines will feature community leaders and frontline workers working to reopen their communities safely during these challenging times. Hello, I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez, and this is From the Front Lines. As we barrel toward the 4th of July holiday, Florida is at a crossroads when it comes to COVID-19. We aren't where we were back in March when this podcast started, but many question whether we are better off or not. While the economy has slowly reopened, daily reporting of positive cases of coronavirus statewide have set records only to be broken by the next day's accounting. To put that in perspective, roughly 32% of Alachua County's positive cases have come in the last week. Despite the trend, Governor Ron DeSantis remains adamant about not issuing a statewide mandate for face coverings. Um, you know, there's an enforcement that has to follow in that, and we have a lot of places in Florida where that would not be a good use of resources. So I think the, the approach where it's more tailored to the circumstances make more sense. We at From the Front Lines are taking this episode to revisit some of the voices you have heard over the past three months, to provide updates on some frontline workers' efforts, and to find out how everyone continues to cope with the pandemic as things become more uncertain. Taylor Levesque checks back in with University of Florida professor in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition, Keith Schneider, about what cautions we should be taking when in public and any new advice as coronavirus cases rise in Florida. The last time we spoke, you had mentioned that people should shop as less frequently as possible. Is that still the best advice to give at this moment? Yeah, I think the advice still stands. With the spike in cases that we're seeing, or new cases that we're seeing, uh, by no means is this uh, pandemic over. The advice given several months ago still stands. Limit your exposure to other people. I would still recommend wearing a mask. I would still recommend social distancing as much as, as much as possible. Moving forward with masks and gloves and kind of debunking if they work or they don't work, have masks been proven to work now that we know more? It was reported that they don't 100% prevent the spread, and that's true. Uh, But they are effective, even if moderately effective, say 75% or so. Uh, It's still better than zero. While not 100%, and they do have flaws, especially some of the less expensive, or if you continue reusing a single-use mask, they become less effective over time. So wearing a mask, especially in public places, is still going to have some benefit. And as we open up and we see this spike of cases and less and less people are wearing masks, it's very concerning that, again, some of the easier things that we can do are being ignored. We, we think that the majority of the cases are from person-to-person contact through these respiratory droplets. But in, until this is over, I would continue to uh, wash hands. We're seeing all over the world, um, even in New Zealand, who had up at this point zero cases, they, they loosened their rules a little bit, and um, the disease has come back. And we're seeing that not only here, but in several states around the U.S. So uh, vigilance, constant vigilance is still going to be necessary until we have a vaccine. And um, again, I, I would hope more people would follow those rules. And when it comes to disinfecting groceries, you had said you're not a fan of that. Do you still stand by that answer? Yes, I do. Um, And again, the the question always was, well, as somebody who has COVID, has it on their hands and they touch a piece of fruit or food, and then you touch that fruit and then you touch your eyes or your nose, um, that doesn't seem to be a 
major route of infection. Now, it doesn't mean it can't happen. Uh, we're just not seeing a whole lot of cases associated with that. It doesn't mean we might not see it in the future. But what we do know is if you're using harsh sanitizers on food items that um, you're going to be ingesting, uh, those chemicals are not meant to be ingested, and you're probably doing yourself more harm than good by using um, uh, chemicals that are not meant to be put on food. So unless you have um, food-grade chemicals and you're using them at the proper concentration, you can accidentally poison yourself. We had a couple of cases uh, where, again, chemicals were mixed together and uh, some people almost died. Uh, they mixed bleach and uh, vinegar together, which is a dangerous combination. My, my best recommendation is no, I don't think you should be uh, wiping your groceries down. So I still recommend, again, segregating them in a low traffic area of your home if you, if you are. But again, that's a minor route of infection at this point. Now, is there anything else that we didn't know the last time that we talked that is relevant now? We knew, we knew a lot about the virus before. Uh, what we've learned is that we're seeing less cases associated with um, what we call fomites or the contracting it through uh, touching of surfaces. Uh, and more, uh, and it's more likely you're going to get this through respiratory droplets, which is being in direct contact with people. Uh, there's been a de-emphasis on hand washing and, and all those other things and concentrating on mask use and, and social distancing. We're learning uh, a lot about this particular virus, and it seems like person-to-person -person spread is um, the way this usually occurs. I think what people should be aware of uh, is that the numbers in Florida are going up rapidly. We have more new cases now than we did at the, the peak of this outbreak. It is by no means over. The good news is we, we're finding more ways to treat it, so the number of deaths are going down. Um, we've done a really good job in flattening the curve. So we're not seeing a whole lot of serious illness and or deaths uh, despite this spike in new cases, uh, and we want to keep it that way. And what we'd like to see is those number of new cases go down again uh, and not be on the upward trend like they've been over the last week or so. The state's public universities have spent the past few months drafting plans to reopen their campuses in the fall, which they presented to the Florida Board of Governors for approval at a meeting this week. Kristen Moorhead tells us more about their plans to keep everyone safe. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. Motion carries. The University of Central Florida plan includes updated cleaning schedules, new infrastructure, and a phased residence hall move-in with testing and contact tracing. UCF trustee Maribeth Ehas says UCF will transition back to remote learning after Thanksgiving break to allow students who want to go home to do so without the risk of bringing back possible infections. Students that are committed to housing already will be having the opportunity to decide, is that good for them? Um, is that what they want to do? We'll be communicating our expectations as well as the fact that the semester is going to be different at the end. UCF spokesperson Heather Smith said via email that student housing costs will be the same regardless of whether they stay on campus or go home for the two weeks after break. The university will also install new touchless devices like faucets, toilets, and doors, as well as plexiglass dividers and hand sanitizer stations to prevent the spread of COVID-19. According to Interim Vice President and COO of UCF's Administration and Finance Division, Misty Shepard, all this new infrastructure comes at a cost. Right now, we're at about $5 million, which includes the facility upgrades, 
the UV lighting technology, the um, hand sanitizing stations, the masks. Shepard says the university has been cutting utility costs since students and faculty left campus, which will help with the expense. The University of Florida's plan focuses on a screen test protect method. According to Provost Joe Glover, UF will provide mandatory screening for all students and mandatory testing for all symptomatic students. So we anticipate, in fact, it's almost unavoidable that there will, will be students who become ill during the semester uh, or who will need to be isolated and quarantined. And it's incumbent on us to ensure that they can continue to the extent that they're physically able their studies, even though they may be you know, isolated in, a, in an apartment or a hotel room. UF spokesperson Steve Orlando says many of the decisions regarding classes being offered online or in person were left to the individual deans. When you get down to a certain level of granularity, that's where the decision was made. It's better for this to happen at the college level. You know your college and department needs, so you make these decisions. UF also discussed ways to prevent virus spikes after Thanksgiving break. The Board of Trustees decided to tell professors to structure their classes to be online after Thanksgiving break and will give students the option to stay on campus or return home. According to Orlando, the university expects no drop in student enrollment in the fall. Students who want to be here, whether they have classes in person or not, they want to be in Gainesville, they want that experience and we want to be able to provide it to the, to the extent that we can in a safe way. The United Faculty of Florida and the Florida Education Association formed a committee to suggest recommendations to Florida universities. UFF President Karen Morian says the committee wanted universities to hear from important stakeholders. And so we brought in students, staff, faculty, parents, community leaders, mental health, public health people. We brought in a legislator who's worked on higher ed to help us on the, on the legislative and financial side. Their plan focused on student safety and success, as well as providing mental health resources for students. Morian says they found ways for universities to pay for some of the necessary changes. And so we're asking not only the governor, but the legislator to help us um, help move funds around so we can use it where it's needed. Um, the state has a significant rainy day fund. We think it's pouring and it's time to start dipping into that pot. Students from both universities agree that the fall semester will be different. Chief of Staff for UF Student Government Virginia Howell says her role is to represent students in this time of crisis. Students are in need of support at this time, whether it be financial support, social support, anything in general. You know, it's our job to be able to bring that to the Board of Trustees. UCF student body president Sabrina LaRosa says she wants to create a sense of normalcy on campus while still prioritizing safety. And we want student organizations and we want our, you know, fun traditions and our fun events to continue. It's the matter of processing what should be hybrid, what should be virtual, and what could possibly be, you know, again, that hybrid event in person as well. LaRosa says despite the circumstances, she knows the student body will adapt and be flexible. At the end of the day, this is the new normal for the whole world. So it's how can we be creative and adapt events to, again, create that sense of normalcy, but equally making sure that students are being safe. Many university plans were similar, but each focused on the specific needs of the students, faculty, and staff. Come August, the plans will be put to the test and adjustments will be made as necessary. Weeks ago, as schools closed for the remainder of the school year, we sat down with Alachua County Schools Director of Food and Nutritional Services, Maria Eunice, when they had given out their millionth meal and their take-home meals program. This week, Cameron Lund got back in touch with Eunice to see how they have transitioned during the summer. At CS Norton Elementary in Gainesville, over 200 meals were given out on Thursday, June 18th. 
Alachua County School Board is providing meals on Monday through Thursday to any child under the age of 18. Meals are being provided at 74 locations in the county. There are two separate types of locations. Those such as Norton are providing meals to pick up on-site, whereas larger locations such as GHS and Newberry High are providing the on-site pickup and also taking meals to be received at bus stops in the county. Eunice talks about how busy this program has been during the summer. We are serving much more than we had served in the past. It's a different type of service because we're doing the curbside service off-site. Um, the families can take the meals with them and it's prepackaged, so it's, it's a totally different type of service, but we have been able to serve much, many more meals. We are hitting, this, this week we hit 1.7 million meals. So we've, we've distributed a, you know, many, 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 many meals during this time. We've, we're serving breakfast, lunch, and, and snack during this time. Not only are those being served getting helped by the food that they're being provided, but so are the workers. Along with cafeteria workers, the county is also offering part-time work to qualified workers and even work to some of the county's out-of-work crossing guards. Eunice also spoke about those job opportunities. We didn't have the summer, summer school proper, so we have those crossing guards that are, um, that are, are serving um, meals with us and preparing meals. We also have some paras that work for the school board that, um, that were extra, and they have started to work with us um, during the school year and also during the summer program during this curbside service. So we, are, we, are, we have these great partnerships and collaborations that have developed over this, over this feeding period and it's, it's been wonderful to have this, this extra help. Eunice is happy to help provide for children during this troubling time. We're really, really happy to be able to provide the service to the community. Uh, some people lost their jobs during this process, and we are thankful to, to offer this service to the community. The program will not be offered on July 4th, but the day before, an extra meal will be offered, much like on Thursdays when meals last through the weekend. To look for a site near you, visit the Alachua County School Board website. When schools statewide transitioned to online learning, Florida Virtual School stepped up to help students, parents, and teachers with the transition. Anthony Montalto checked back in with Florida Virtual School Chief Operations Officer Sam Verghese to see what the school has planned for the summer and the upcoming school year. How did the end of the regular school year go for you guys? I think for us, you know, it went well in the sense that, you know, we continued our mission. Anthony, we continued to, to move forward. I think, you know, regardless of what was going on in this scenario with COVID, you know, we were still working hard to make sure that, that our mission was being accomplished and the task that we had here in Florida, which is which is always to deliver a high quality technology based education that provides the skills and knowledge students need for success. So we continued to do that. I'd say overall, even though there was a lot changing in the world around us, we were trying to to be available and adapt to the needs around us as much as possible. But our mission stayed the same and we continued to do everything possible to see that mission through to the end of the year. Sounds good. So last time we spoke, I know we talked about how you guys were offering a bunch of uh, courses. I think it was about 100 courses and you had a online parent portal and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. So is that something that you guys are planning to continue? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. It, it, what's interesting, Anthony, is that I think when we talked a few months ago, 
when this was all starting, there's still some similarities in the sense that as each day goes by, each week goes by, there's still question marks about what things are going to look like, you know, when it comes to the fall and how schools and families and how parents and educators are going to adjust to these things as they go forward. You know, as you probably know, there's there's much that is to be determined at a local level. And when it comes to us, I think what what's really our, our guiding point and our continued center of the way we do things is to continue to be there to keep the student at the center of every decision. And I think when there's a world that's changing around us and there's a, still a lot of questions and a lot of fear, we still want to move forward and create positive action. So when it comes to you know, what we're doing with our online learning community, as we talked about last time at, at flbs.net slash community, we're continually putting material up there. We constantly want to provide great materials for people who need that help, whether that's an educator, parent, um, or a student. And at the same time, and we, we want to constantly get that feedback from what's happening at the district level. So, of course, we're constantly thinking of um, other ways to continue to work with them and to continue to provide it directly to the students themselves as far as when it comes to you know, our award-winning courses and our teaching model and the way that we uh, really provide that vital component of education being one of the four vital components of education here in Florida. So in that, I, I say that we're constantly thinking, you know, let's not just react, but let's continue to think about how do we continue to deliver what our real goal is and why we exist. And that's to basically to continue to work together and collaborate to help deliver the best education for students here in Florida. So we talked about how this is kind of an ongoing thing. Are there any plans in the works for Florida Virtual School over the summer? I think one point I want to I wanna add is that when it comes to the online learning community, we're going to continue to add resources. So to your point, as things shift, we're going to continue to add new resources to help as schools prepare, you know, reopening and as there's continued virtual education opportunities that are coming about. Um, because keep in mind, remote learning of what was experienced during this time is not the same as virtual education. There's, there's a gap between those two things. To answer your question directly, though, about the summer as well, is that we have what we call a rolling enrollment that goes on with our flex system when it comes to Florida virtual school. So we have students coming in during the summer as well for vast different reasons. You know, we have some people who want to get ahead for the next year. We have some people who are trying to continue to maybe supplement more of their core subject areas and more learning and knowledge that they're trying to gain to get ready for the next year. I have a, a son who's taking actually an advanced math class to be ready for next year coming up. We have some athletes who are taking additional classes to get ready because maybe their sport is going to be more demanding for them in the fall and they're still a student athlete and they need to be taking some classes to get ahead in those arenas as well. That's great. So it, it never really stops over there then, does it? You got it. <laughs> it keeps going. And, and you know what, Anthony, I think that's what Floridians would want. I think they would want to know that you know, their education system is hard at work for them and that they're going to get out of it as much as they're willing to put in. Well said. So I think my last question here is looking forward toward the future. Is there any concern about a second wave could force another influx of students uh, into the program? And if so, how are you guys equipped to deal with that? You know, from our side, as, as 
mentioned early on, you know, our commissioner of education constantly talked about compassion and grace being guiding principles along with our governor. And from our perspective, we want to constantly be ready. Something we did is we um, took time and effort and energy and resources to, you know, ramp up our capacity of students that we would be able to enroll potentially and be able to serve. And, you know, we talked about last time, um, some of the courses that we were offering for a, a limited time for free, you know, as far as for districts and for other private schools and charter schools who needed that, and which we did. And then I think going forward, we tried to be available from an infrastructure side to be able to serve into you know, 2.7 million capacity as far as folks coming in in case a second wave came. And, and Anthony, you know, there's no way for us to predict the future. I think knowing the answer to that is really just what can we control in the moment? You know, what do we have an opportunity to, to be able to affect? Back in May, when Taylor Levesque last spoke to Lindsay Magnus, her new business, Arvo Surf and Coffee's grand opening, was delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Since then, her business is now open. We hear how she's doing. It's been very good so far. Like, we've been pretty shocked by how busy we've been considering the, the environment right now. I would say that things have gone a lot smoother than I anticipated, but I would also say that as far as customers and, and, and that type of thing, like nobody is, seems to be phased by the virus at this point anymore. <laughs> With the coffee shop and the surf shop together, have you seen um, a lot of business at the coffee shop and then people coming over to the surf shop too? Right now, almost everybody comes in for coffee and then they're like, surprised to learn that there's a surf shop there. Have you been talking to customers that have been coming in? Are they mostly tourists who are coming down for the summer or are they locals? We have a good bit of locals. We probably have about 30 people that come in, like I'd say either every day or every other day, which is awesome. But the majority of people coming in are on vacation. Like they all just flew in. So they're all tourists. They're from all over the U.S. I've had people from Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, Texas, California, New York, uh, Georgia. It's, it's kind of like, it seems like Florida is just like the spot that people are going right now. And have you all been keeping up with social distancing, wearing masks, sanitizing? Our employees wear masks anytime someone is in the store. They're allowed to pull it down if there's no customers in the store, but they have to be like 10 feet away from another employee. So they have to kind of be in their own bubble just to, and we do that only so they can get like some fresh air and feel a little normal for a second. But as soon as somebody comes in the store, they have to put the mask back up or anytime they come in close contact with another employee, they have to be wearing it. We really haven't had any problems with it. Like employees are very happy to do it. They, like they realize that they're in the public and they're kind of exposed. So they are happy to do it. But I would say like customer wise, very, very few customers are wearing masks. Like Probably 5% wear masks at this point. We spray everything down. Like if somebody comes and sits at one of our tables, as soon as they get up, we have a disinfectant that kills COVID in 45 seconds. So we spray the table, let it sit, and then we wipe it down. Bathrooms and like the, the registered keypads are done like once an hour. Fitting rooms are done once an hour. Front door handles, back door handles, those are all done also. We had... Um, a company called Ecolab come install in our back break room. It's like a machine that disperses the COVID sanitizer. We're very concerned about everyone's health. 
we're just trying to distance the most we can. But as far as the process of opening, it, it went pretty smoothly. Um, I, I think, and actually thinking back, it went a lot smoother than I thought it was going to. So moving into now the summertime, what do you hope to see um, along the community and along your business? I would like to see our customers wearing masks more. I think that it should be more top of mind maybe for them and just to also help our staff and, and all staff, like all over. I mean, the numbers of Pinellas are so high right now, so it feels like it, it, it's a nice gesture to do, I think, to keep everyone protected. So I would like to see that and just everyone try to stay safe. I, I don't think that stores need to close at this point. I just think everyone just needs to try like their best to, to maintain six feet and really just like make a conscious effort to do like what is safe and best for their families. Though many public places in Florida are reopening, some places like Alachua County's public libraries remain closed. But that doesn't mean the library district's 12 locations aren't still working hard to serve the community. Melissa Fato spoke to Joyce West, Public Services Division Director of the Alachua County Library District, on what services and resources the public can still get from their local library during the pandemic. So what kind of resources is the library currently able to offer to patrons even though the physical locations, or at least the headquarter uh, location is closed, right? Well, all of our locations are closed, allowing patrons to come in the building. However, we are doing curbside, which will allow patrons to pick up books, DVDs and CDs and our other materials um, Monday through Saturday from 9.30 to 5. Um, they can call any branch. Um, they can place the items on a hole and then come and do curbside to pick them up. They can also use curbside to get a new library card or to renew their library card. And we also like to tell people that our digital collection, which is our online collection for ebooks and e-magazines and music and stuff, is always available 24-7 at our website, aclib.us. We have modified our programming. So where we would normally do programming, face-to-face um, -face programming, we have taken as much of our program as possible and turned it into virtual programming. A lot of them are pre-recorded, so we're posting them on our website. And we're also using some social media, such as Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and we hope to move to more like live type programming like via Zoom or GoToMeeting in the near future. If we've done it in person in the past we've done our best to record it as a video and make it someplace where people can go back and watch it at their convenience. With the staff of a library like what's the process been like adapting all of these practices? I think for our, most of our staff is, you know, we just kind of, it's a new challenge that we've been presented with and we're just, you know, doing the best that we can. Um, I think a lot of our staff had previous experience with social media. They knew how to do video recording on their phones. They things that they had already done in their everyday life. And then for some staff, this has been a new welcoming challenge to them because they've never recorded themselves doing a, a program and stuff like that. So it has been new skills that they've had to learn, but they have stepped up to the plate and done the best that they're able to do. You know, what, what needs is the library system fulfilling in the different communities in Alachua County right now? 
Um, you know, with the curbside, we're able to fulfill their entertainment and their educational needs. Um, even though we're close to the building, they can use our resources like lynda.com, which is also known as LinkedIn, which will help you from everything on um, how to use the Microsoft Word. So if you needed to kind of brush up on that, because unfortunately, maybe you were unemployed and you're looking for a different type of employment, it teaches you how to use other different types of softwares. We have tutor.com, which is for the students who may still be in school. We have transparent language if you want to um, you know learn how to speak a different language during this time and then we have another one called learning express if you need to like prepare to take the GREs or the SATs or your nursing exams so we have different things like that that have always been available to patrons but we have definitely been pushing them now because those things are available while they're not able to come into the building and you know what ways do you think that libraries are important to communities like throughout all events throughout all times we are important because people come to us as a trusted source of information. And so we like to say that you can come to us for information, whether it's as simple as what's the smallest bone in my body to what's the weather outside or what's the telephone number to the Macy's that's located in California or can you help me with my research paper to can you help me fill out my unemployment? Um, can you get me an appointment at the Social Security office? So our thing is kind of like you come to us for information. If we're not able to provide it for you, we can point you in the right direction of the office or the organization that can help you get the answers that you need. So we are a starting point for a lot of individuals. Right, and on that note, the physical space of the library is also really important, right? Because Correct. it's yes. a space for people, you know, whoever you are, you don't have to pay, you can come, you can sit in the air conditioning, you can study, you can work, you can use the computer. Um, you know, how important is it to open that, that space up again one day? It's very important for us to be able to open up our space once again one day, but protecting the health and safety of our staff members and the patron is our top priority. So we have to look at things from that point of view. So as we think about reopening, when that might be, we always have to take their safety as our top priority before we're able to move forward. Constantly, you know, look at the recommendations of the CDC, the local and state office, and kind of use their best practices as we're making those decisions to reopen. And during an earlier episode of From the Front Lines, we told you about Noatius Terra, a company which was working with the city of Gainesville to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Well, now that company has been purchased by Orogenics Incorporated. Josh Williams spoke with Orogenics president and CEO Alan Jocelyn about what this means for Alachua County and the status of the vaccine. From what I understand, you guys purchased Noatius Terra, is that correct? That's correct. Acquired Noatius Terra on May 1st. Uh, they were private. A uh, company uh, in Gainesville, Florida, that had acquired uh, the National Institute of Health created um, vaccine for what we call SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. What led up to the decision to purchase them? We, unfortunately, we had uh, a large clinical trial with one of our lead assets, uh, and that trial uh, was unsuccessful at, at separating the active from placebo. And uh, we were introduced by, uh, to Noches Terra, uh, actually like a day or two after we got the results from that trial. And it was a, an excellent strategic fit for Orogenics 
uh, because we were already working in the area of a new class of antibiotics. So essentially, it was an opportunity for us to pivot, become uh, a pure play um, infectious disease biotechnology company, and, and that's what we did. I know they had recently relocated here to the Gainesville, Alachua County area. Are the plans to continue to keep those operations here or will they be moving? Uh, no, our plans are to uh, expand uh, our footprint here in the Alachua area. Uh, and there's every indication that, you know, through the local support of the mayor of Alachua, uh, people in Gainesville, that uh, there's plenty of opportunity to expand locally. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons that I'm talking to all the different folks I am. Do you mind telling me how your meetings with local leaders have gone so far? Oh, they, they, they've, they've gone really, really well. They, uh, everybody is very receptive to what we're trying to accomplish here, uh, not just for the, the, the COVID-19 vaccine, but, you know, really create a, a large orogenics footprint uh, in the Sid Martin Biotech Center and expand biotechnology uh, in, in this particular region because, you know, it, it, it's a hotbed from the, the scientific perspective with the medical school and the pharmacy school and the vet school. And, and so there, there's plenty of opportunity to recruit good talent uh, into, uh, into this area. What is the progress on a COVID-19 vaccine? For us, uh, we just acquired the company May 1st, and we have already moved this particular vaccine candidate into uh, what we call like the cell line development. Traditionally, we'll go ahead and use those cells, create the spike protein, and add what we call an adjuvant, which stimulates our immune system. And from there, uh, go ahead and use another company here in um, the Sid Martin Center called Ology to do what's called fill finish or put it into vials that actually can be uh, used to, to provide the vaccine to um, individual subjects, uh, hopefully sometime in early 2021. Obviously, many things could happen, but what kind of time frame would we possibly be looking at for something to hit the market? We, in all likelihood, by the time that you're done enrolling that phase one, followed by, say, some sort of phase two, three combined, uh, by the time the first readout of data, you're probably looking at late 2021, into early 2022, and that, that's for this traditional vaccine product. We need to remember that, um, generally speaking, only two out of 10 vaccines are successful in their development. So the whole idea is to try and generate as many shots on goal as you can, because remember, we're trying to immunize the world. And there's a lot of people in the world that need immunizations, and they may need two or three shots, which means a tremendous amount of vaccine needs to be generated. From the Front Lines is a production of the Innovation News Center at the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thank you to our producers, Taylor Levesque, Anthony Montalto, Josh Williams, Melissa Fato, Gabriella Paul, and Cameron Lund. Also, thanks to our fellow Florida public media stations for their contributions to this podcast. 
and a special thank you to Matt Abramson and Craig Lee for their work behind the scenes. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have a story to share with From the Frontlines, please contact WUFT on Facebook or Twitter, or send an email to news at WUFT.org. That's news at WUFT.org. Join us next Friday for another edition of From the Frontlines. I'm your host, Ryan Vasquez, and of course, thanks for listening.